What's up, guys? It's Joe here, live at Nerdville, episode two. I've switched coasts since last week. I'm in New York City, and um, I'm really, really excited to, uh, to introduce not only my friend, but a member of the most successful duo of all time, 10 number one records, hit after hit after hit, ladies and gentlemen, your friend and mine, Mr. John Oates. Thank you very much for doing this. I'm really honored. Hey, Joe, it's great. It's great to see you. And, uh, you know, I'm glad you're doing okay hanging in New York. And I'm here in Nashville. And you know what? We're going to talk guitars. And that sounds like a nice afternoon for me. It's a nice distraction from what's going on. You know, that we, we met for the first time, I believe, in 2009. And we were involved in a very, let's just say, <laughs> unique performance <laughs> yeah. situation involving yeah. Stevie Wonder. Would you like to elaborate on that? How we, how you and I met for the first well, time? Well, um, you know, whenever we go to LA, we always stay at the Sunset Marquee Hotel. And it's, it's just a great vibe. We become very good friends with those folks. And my buddy, Jed Lieber, who has the recording studio downstairs in the basement of the Sunset, uh, they wanted to organize a uh, some sort of uh, party. And I, I can't remember what the actual excuse was, but in LA, who needs an excuse for a party, right? Right. It was, so, um, yeah, it was one of those, you, you, you come and uh, we'll throw the party. Right. right. So uh, Jed wanted to put a little band together. Uh, he asked me, if, and, uh, and I brought T-Bone, our bass player, yeah. and uh, Billy Gibbons was involved, and you you were there. And um, all of a sudden, they uh, they asked Stevie Wonder, and he was supposed to perform as well. I don't know. It was a very loose, loosey-goosey thing. I mean, you know, yeah. I, we were just jamming. I remember you were on stage, and we were all trying to figure out what the, what we were doing, and... Uh, you know, I, I was um, I was pretty much uh, okay with letting Billy Gibbons kind of uh, kind of run the run the circus. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, he was driving. <laughs> he was he was definitely driving the car that night. And, and I just remember <laughs> Stevie Wonder playing one song and, right. and going, "Thanks, I'm 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 good." You know, and hey, listen, what? one song from Stevie's fantastic. But he was like, he's like, "No, no, I'm I'm good." And they're like, "Please, please, superstition." He wouldn't come back. Well, you know, it was funny. I think what he did, as I recall, he played a ballad and everybody was like, OK, they're polite. And then someone yelled superstition. And I think he just played the riff. He just went. Gong, 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 gong. He goes, that's it. That's all you're getting. And, right. <laughs> and I, 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 I thought it was one of the greatest showbiz moments I've ever been witness to. I mean, talk <laughs> about leaving, yeah. leaving them wanting more. You know, right. he, he left them wanting it all. You know, and it was, yeah, yeah. and he just kind of got up. He had a guy kind of lead him out, and it was Stevie yeah. Wonder, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. I was like, oh, that's. Yeah. So, hey, you know, he's Stevie, Stevie Wonder. I guess he can do what he wants. So, speaking of New York City, you were born here in New York City. I was. My whole family's from New York, even though, you know, I'm known to be from Philadelphia. My, my folks moved. Uh, my father, right after, um, you know, in the early 1950s, my dad's company, which was a New York-based company, moved to Pennsylvania. And it was one of those deals where if uh, if you were an employee and you were willing to move, you could get kicked upstairs and become a supervisor or get a better job. job. So he took the family, and we were the only part of the family that actually left New York City area. And so we moved to a small town in Pennsylvania. And uh, But all through my childhood, I mean, really, all, from the time I was – three years old or four when we moved, we went back and forth to New York City every weekend because my parents' family and they were homesick for their friends. So, you know, it's kind of I had dual citizenship in a way. Right. You know, I lived lived in Pennsylvania, but I was always very comfortable in New York. And so I grew up in Pennsylvania. And finally, when I met Daryl and we decided to move back to New York in, in the early 70s, for me, it was like, you know, it just seemed completely normal. 
Right, because it's, you know, for, like maybe not a lot of people know the geography that, that are from different parts of the world that are listening and watching is, you know, New York and Philly. It's like it's, it's a sub. It's, it's like a, it's an it's a glorified long subway ride. It's 80 oh, miles. Don't, you know? don't, oh, don't say that. Don't say that. Your Philadelphia people will be all over you, man. Well, you know, it is. It is. It's easily commutable. You know, what I mean, and that's, you know, it, you know, Joe, you're right. It is easily commutable, but it's almost like it's a different planet. I mean, it, honestly, yeah. People from Philadelphia really don't think of going to New York. They, you know, they're not going to go to New York to see a Broadway show. They're not going to go for a restaurant. They're not going to go for a sh concert or whatever. Uh, it's really two different places separated by 90 miles of turnpike. And, 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 a, and a lot of really interesting Philly-based music came oh, yeah. from Philadelphia. I mean, like, I mean, we're talking about, like, you know, you, you, God, I mean, it, it's... I mean, you guys came out of Philadelphia. Like, I mean, it, you know, there's like, I mean, I have a list here. You know, it's just, um, you know, uh, you know, uh, where's my list? It goes. It, it, it goes just on. It goes on and on and on. But yeah. you know what I mean? You know, Jerry Butler's from Philly. You know, talk to me about like, like being in that scene as a kid, because you were a member of the band called The Masters that recorded right. in 66. Right. And, and you had a song called I Need Your Love, which was very Philly soul sounding yeah. to me mm -hmm. and tell me about being in that scene with all of those bands like Artie Bell and, and you know and 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 tell me like what it was like um to be immersed in that scene and then as a teenager before you even graduated high school join it right. and be in the record business well you know um it was a very small music scene D Daryl and I grew up about 20 miles apart even though we didn't know each other and uh went to the same type of schools and we, and we were listening to the same radio stations. So when we finally met, we had this common musical vocabulary. But uh, at the time, you know, I had a band, as you said, it was called The Masters. We, um, we played around, uh, you know, made some decent money and uh, put, pulled our money together and we wanted to record. So I had written a song with our bass player, a guy named Pat Collins, and um, we went to, um, let's see, it was down on Broad Street uh, let's see, I'm trying to think is um, the name of the studio. But anyway, it was um, it was where Guitar Boogie Shuffle was recorded. Right. That was the claim to fame. And it was a two track. Uh, we made it. We recorded a, a, with our band. We were a combo. We were vocals and we had a sax, a, a trombone, bass, drums. And I played guitar. And uh, that was it. And um, it didn't come out very well. And the uh, engineer said, you know, you guys are pretty good, but you need some help. And he introduced us to a guy named Bobby Martin, who later went on to become a, a, a huge arranger for Gamble and Huff. He arranged Backstabbers and uh, right. Love Train and stuff like yeah. that. So we went down and met this guy, Bobby Martin, in a little office on Lower Broad Street. And I walked in with my acoustic guitar and he sat there. You know, he was older than us and he was a lot slicker. And, you know, he had the sharkskin suit and he had a little upright piano in this little tiny office. And I played him the song. He went, yeah, I'll get you guys straight. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll figure this out for you. He brought in an extra horn or two. And a, a week later, we went back to the same studio and we recorded the song, which we then released. So we had this acetate of, of the song. And um, we didn't really know what to do with it. So there was a place on Chestnut Street called the Record Museum, which sold vintage 45s. Right. So we, we went down to the Record Museum and we literally walked in on a Saturday morning. And there was a guy behind the counter. He said, hey, we, we made this record. You want to hear it? And the guy said, sure. He put it on the and it was the acetate, you know, the one you could only play like five, six times right. and uh, before it deteriorated. And he played it. He goes, hey, this is pretty good. 
and he brought us into the back office and the guy gave us a contract and we signed it. We, we had no clue, not even, you know, by the way, that is a, that, a portent for things to come in my freaking musical career. Uh, well, that's the thing, you know, I asked Dion, um, the great Dion yeah. last week, and I asked him, I said, you know, there was certain thing about the generation of singers. I mean, like, like you included, like you guys were so in tune you know, now it's it's like you can sing. I can sing any atonal melody into this microphone that's <laughs> my left, and somebody with the with the wherewithal can make it sound like I actually, you know, can sing opera. Yeah. You know, but you guys were going direct to two two track, and his answer. I'd be curious to see what you know. I'll, I'll tell you his answer after you know I get yours. Is it's like what do you think was it was it about that generation of singers that that even as teenagers, had this amazingly grounded pitch center. Because, I mean, listen to you sing when you were 16 years old. I mean, it's like your pitch center, is just, it hasn't changed. It's, it, it was, it, it's amazing. Well, you know, Joe, I, the only thing I can say is it was, the, it was an era where, you know, it was, I mean, without sounding too crazy, it was kind of the end of, a, of, of a hundreds of years of, of how musicians became musicians. Right. They... They learn from the people who came before them. They study the, the the masters, so to speak, or the people that they admired. Um, and you had to learn how to play. You had to be able to play your guitar. You had to be able to sing. You had, or else you you weren't in the game. There was no in between. Right. So the the people that that did finally record and the people that did make a career out of it that came from that era, they understood what it took to put on a live show. What it took to to um, to, to sing and play, you know, it, it's really as simple as that. And I think that's what it was. That's, that's, that was Dion's answer. It's like, we, we sang in tune because we had to, and yeah. you didn't get a record deal unless you sang in tune. And exactly. it, it, it was, it was really true. I'm in a band with uh, Mike Merritt who played bass guitar for Conan O'Brien and, and um, uh, for 25 years and, and countless other sessions. He's a good friend of mine. And his father was 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 Jimmy Merritt, who played on Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers. I mean, these are Philly guys. And there was a huge jazz scene. There was a huge soul yes. scene. And when you went to Temple University, you 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 know you met a guy named Daryl. Right. And you, but what I don't think a lot of people know, you were studying journalism at the time. You wanted Sorry. to be a, you wanted to, you went to school after you had your your hit song as a teenager. <laughs> you graduated high school and you went okay. I'm going to Temple University. I'm going to get you know like every parent wants to hear. I'm going to go get a real job in an education. So what do you regret um, not getting your journalism degree and in, in, in totally going a different path or or is there was it going man it was just meant to be and this is this is the the path that was given to me. Well, Joe, it uh, didn't quite work out exactly like that. Um, right. I, I, I took journalism because the only thing at Temple University that had anything to do with music was classical music, and right. I wasn't interested. Um, and journalism came, uh, writing in general has always come easy for me, uh, whether it's songwriting or prose or whatever it might be. So I took it as the path of least resistance, to be honest with you, so that I could play music in the right. evenings and on the side, and I could get a degree, which I wanted to get, and I love, and I love to write. So it kind of worked okay for me. Um, Daryl was actually a music major, and he he quit like three weeks before graduation, and he never graduated, but because he, he didn't care, because he he got a good gig with a bar band, and he was making money, so that's all he cared about. So, but when I put out that first record with the Masters, Daryl was putting out his first record with a group called the Temptones, 
Right. And our, our singles were being played at the exact same time on Philadelphia R&B stations. So we knew of each other and then we eventually met. Yeah. Matt, did you know when you first sang with Daryl that there was something special about the way you two interacted, <laughs> wrote songs, wrote, you know, just, you know, the, there was a kinetic energy or some sort of, you know, because there's, there's a lot of duos, you know, yeah. and, but there's only one Hall and Oates. And well. <laughs> it, 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 there, there was well, an X factor somewhere. We, we, uh, when we first got together, his, his band fell apart, my band fell apart. We actually gravitated toward each other. And um, we wrote a song and we went to the Temple University radio station to record it on a little reel to reel tape recorder. It sounded so bad. We actually laughed and we went, you know what? We'll just hang out. This is never going to work. And literally, that's what happened. That was 1968. And we actually didn't work together until 1970. So right. during those two years, he was he was doing sessions. He did some Gamble and Huff sessions. He was working with a bar band. I was playing in a blues band and doing some folk stuff. Um, and then I went to Europe. And when I came back from Europe in the fall of 1970, he was disillusioned with what he was doing. I didn't have that much going on. And we just... Well, it's actually a funny story. I had sublet my apartment to his sister and her boyfriend, and they didn't pay the rent while I was gone. So when I came back, there was a padlock on the apartment. So I was literally came back from Europe with a backpack and a guitar, and I went, I went, walked over to Daryl's house, and I went, hey, man, your sister kind of messed me up here. I've got nowhere to live. He said, that's all right. You can live upstairs. So right. I moved I moved upstairs, and that's where he had his electric piano, and he would come up and start playing, and I picked up the guitar, and that's how it started. Wow, that's great. And yeah. you were signed to Atlantic. You, yeah, that was the first thing, yes. And, uh, and that, who signed that you wasn't was, easy either. Was, who signed you? Was it Jerry or uh, Amit? Well, Jerry Greenberg was in the room, but it was, uh, it was, it was actually uh, Arif Martin, the producer, who really was the, you know, we did an audition for him in New York. And um, it, it was, we didn't think the audition went very well. The piano uh, was out of tune. Daryl was a little sick. And we played our songs, and at the end of the meeting, um, uh, Arif stood up and he went, I will produce them. And that's all it took. And we were like, yes. <laughs> yes. Thank you, Arif. Yeah. Yes, exactly. You know, I, you know, when you talk about the great producers, A&R men, I mean, you have to, you, like people like Phil Ramone, Tom Dowd, Arif Martin, you know, um, even John Hammond, you know, the stuff he did at Columbia. I mean, they, 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 knew, they knew how to spot it. And they were like, this is special. And even if you're thinking you're having a bad day, this is this is this is special. I, w I want in on it. And, and that's the Midas touch you know, when it comes to producers. He saw something, you know, and it was like, let's let's develop it. Um, you know, one of the things I wanted to ask you is um, you guys played Live Aid in, in 85 and mm -hmm. Dion Warwick introduced you. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the concert itself, I mean, and your performance was great. The concert itself goes down in history as one of the greatest gatherings of, of, of musicians and artists of all time. Maybe the greatest. Did you feel like you had a good gig when you came off stage? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, you know, I mean, when I look back at that, I think of it, there were three things that happened, and they all happened right close to each other. We played, we reopened the, the, uh, the Apollo Theater with Eddie, Eddie Kendrick and David Ruffin, who were the lead singers of The Temptations. They were our heroes. Right. Then we did We Are the World with, with Michael and, and Lionel and, and Quincy Jones. Yeah. And right after that, we did Live Aid. And that happened like all together. And it was kind of crazy. So here we are in the 80s at kind of the height of our pop powers. We're in Philadelphia, which, you know, right. and 
and we're headlining. We're headlining. Yeah, yeah. We're headlining Live Aid. So in a way, it felt like, okay, this is kind of where we should be. And we brought out Eddie Kendrick and David Ruffin, and we reprised that Temptations medley. And then Mick Jagger, at the time, had a solo album out, and he didn't have a band. So he asked us if we would back him. So we said, of course. So we did our set, and then Mick was going to come out. And, of course, he didn't tell us about Tina Turner. He right. didn't know, we didn't know that Tina was coming out and he was going to rip her skirt off. That was a whole, that was so totally, I'm sure knowing Mick, I know he had it totally planned out, right. but, um, but it was very cool. But one of the things I remember the most about it, even above and beyond the show itself, which was amazing, was that the rehearsal that we had at SIR with Mick before the show, uh, we worked up his songs. He gave us what he wanted to play. We were totally locked down. We had the songs. You know, we had a great band in the 80s with G.E. Smith and Mickey Curry and T-Bone. And uh, so we had his songs a lot wired. And I remember Mick coming in with just one guy. It was just him and another guy. They came in. We were on the, on the, on the stage at SIR, you know, in, in Manhattan, where we would rehearse. And he, I remember he just threw off his jacket, jumped on the stage and said, and counted off one of the songs. And the moment he counted it off and we started to play, he went into the entire Mick Jagger routine with right. the chicken wings and the strutting. And the, I mean, right there at SIR, as if there were 80,000 people out there, it was like no holes barred, right. full out. And I was like, I thought, you know, a lot of times in rehearsal, you know, you stroke through a song or whatever, right. you know, but no, man, it was like on. It was on. And uh, I'll never forget that. I thought that was amazing. You know who's like that is Glenn Hughes. Um, I was in a band with him, and at rehearsal, he's doing Glenn Hughes. It, it, there's a there's a switch, you know, on some of those guys. You know, yeah, I, mean, yeah. I don't like to rehearse. I, I rehearse just enough to where we're I feel yeah. we're com- competent on the first show, <laughs> right. and then I let the I let the natural I let the crowd take care of the rest. And you know, so I I'm I'm one of those ones that just okay just. We got this. It's right. we don't need to rehearse the slow blues. We we've played this a million <laughs> times. Thank you very much. But yeah, like it's 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 interesting, you know, because I find that sometimes the the gigs that I get off stage I go, wow, that was like that was a magic night. Mm-hmm. The fans will go, ah, he's a little off. <laughs> and then the, then the nights that I'm literally going, okay, everybody gather around. Let's figure out how to refund twenty five hundred tickets because I was so bad and so off. It, it, it's I, I need to give these people my like my Catholic guilt just gets the best of me, <laughs> and and the fans who've seen me twenty thirty times they'll say there was something special about tonight I don't know what it was there was an ex so reason why I asked about live aid because you know it's like you know you're getting up there it's a you're throwing it all up there there's a yeah. lot of technical stuff with TV and sound and everything. And I was just wondering when you guys came off the stage, did you realize how good it really was? Because you know, I watched it. I watched it yesterday, and I was like, "Man, you guys were you guys were you guys were hitting the note, and you guys were good." It just, well, it's just it's interesting thanks, to get that perspective. Thank you. I mean, you know, that came at that came at really the end of a six year run of, of hits and touring the world nonstop, and we were well oiled, man. We that band was good, you know, and we were so well oiled and so and up for the up for the show, obviously, yeah. playing a show of that magnitude in Philadelphia. Um, so it was just one of those things where, yeah, we were we were on and we were we were hitting it. The energy was high. It's am- it's amazing. Let's talk about the band for a second. G sure. Smith. Um, I, I grew up in the 80s. 
would beg my my parents to watch him on Saturday Night Live because he always used to have a Blackguard Telly and a and a <laughs> Les Paul or some sort yeah, of yeah, yeah. playing great, and he had a lot of reverb, and I just I just loved it. And he's a he's a friend of mine, and I'm I, I'm I'm always starstruck because it's that guy. Yeah. Um, Mickey Curry, obviously on drums, is stuff he did with you. He's a, a monster, you know, Brian Adams. And but T Bone woke. That was a special musician. The late T Bone woke. Um, you know, one of my best friends and a guy who, um, my, my guitar tech, Mike Kiki, yeah. worked very, very closely with T-Bone and, and with you guys and Holmes yeah. and, and always one of the one regret, I never met him, but I was always a fan and he always seemed like the most genuine, joyous musician. Like when he played, he, it doesn't matter if he was playing with Curtis Blow or Holland Oates or whoever, Carly Simon or Elvis yeah. Costello, doesn't matter. You got 100% of what he was what he's all about. So tell me a little bit about, 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 about T-Bone. Well, Joe, I don't think we have enough time because we could have, do a whole show on him. Um, one of the greatest human beings of all time, and I will say, I've been around a lot of good musicians. I've never met a better musician than him, ever, yeah. on every level. Um, when I, you know, a lot of times when I'm in the studio or I'm trying to work something out on the guitar, a lot of times I think, how would T-Bone have done this? You know, how would he have approached it? We, you know, would he have used the tuning or would he have capoed up and, and you know, and played from a different position? You know, um, he, he set the bar for me. And, and I can honestly say in the all the years that I played with him, I don't think I've ever heard him make a mistake, ever. Right. And if he did, he covered it so quickly that it was, you know, imperceptible. Um, another quick story about him. When I did my first solo album in Nashville, I really wanted to have that security blanket because I knew I was, you know, there were going to be some great players, but there were guys I didn't know and I didn't know yeah. them very well. So I thought, you know, my security blanket's going to be T-Bone. I'm going to bring him. He's going to play bass and everything's going to be great. Um, so I, I, I showed up in the studio and I, uh, the guy who was engineering and co-producing with me, you know, he, uh, we looked over a list of players and everything. He said, oh yeah, this is going to be great. He goes, who's this uh, T-Bone guy? And I said, well, he's he's my bass player and he's going to be great. He goes, oh, I don't know. He goes, you know, you're playing with the best guys in Nashville. He goes, you, maybe you should use one of their guys, you know, because they might not feel comfortable. I said, it'll be OK. Right. And so we on the very first session we did, we're starting to play. And all of a sudden the control room's filling with these other people, Michael Rhodes and Steve Mackey. They're, yeah. These bass players are coming in. And my engineer going, why are these guys... He goes, we're here to hear C.T. Bone. And all of a sudden, as soon as you heard him play, it was over, you know. Uh, and, and, you know, he just, he was just, everything he did was right. I, I don't even know how to describe it. Uh, just a consummate musician. He was a great guitar player. Yes. He was New York State accordion champion when he was 12. That's right. Play, he played great keyboards. Um, you know, he just had this incredible, I mean, I could go on and on. Uh, he, one of the very special human beings of all time. And, and here again, I will say one of the greatest musicians I've ever had the privilege of being around. The night you met, he was in, he was playing in your band. Um, the, the, the night we met at the Sunset Marquee and, you know, got to meet John Oates and I was hanging out with Billy Gibbons and I think Zach Wilde was there. It was overwhelming for me, you know, and I met a guy named Mike Hickey, which it's overwhelming <laughs> for anybody. Right, right. <laughs> on first introduction, um, and I said, I just gotta go. I just gotta go say hi to to T Bone and just introduce myself, just to say I met him. And by the time I, I got through all the chaos, he'd already left, mm. and I never got to meet him properly. But again, it was like, you know, there are just certain special musicians that 
that transcend genres. They're not just blues. They're not just rock. They're not just whatever. Yeah. They, they're musicians and in a 360-degree way. Yes. And there's not many of those. Talk to me about how you got into the blues. Because you said, you know, like you were in a blues band. Who, who were your early influences? When I was, uh, when I was really young, uh, in, in junior high school, I had a good, very good friend of mine whose older brother went off to college. And it was during the early 60s folk revival. He went, to, he went to college in North Carolina. I was living in Pennsylvania. And when he came back, I remember on Christmas vacation, he came back with all these albums that I had never heard before. He had uh, John Lee Hooker. He had Doc Watson. He had Joan Baez. He had the Weavers. He had, um, you know, all sorts of unusual albums. And so, you know, I was already playing. I started playing when I was six. So by that time, you know, I was, you know, I was 13. So I've been playing, you know, a few years. I could get around a little bit. And I started listening to these records, and I couldn't figure out what they were doing and how they were doing it. The finger picking, you know, the, the and, I, and I, I, I started absorbing these records. So I literally did the, you know, the old tried and true, drop the needle. Yeah. Listen, you know, I mean, first you had to figure out whether they were in tune or not and, and how to, what key they were in and right. what position they were in. But anyway, you know, I took my time, and little by little I began to learn this stuff. And... Um, you know, then I, I, I listened to things like uh, Ray Charles, you know, Ray Charles's greatest hits. And and it was this, you know, I started to see the connection between R&B, you know, the earliest roots of R&B and the early, early traditional blues that it came from. And right. it, even as a young kid, I, I began to see that connection. And I wanted to, you know, I wanted to be all of that. Right. Um so I, I kind of think of myself more as an acoustic guitar player, you know, and more of an accompanist for my voice and my songwriting. Um, but at the same time, you know, I, I had um, I started to delve deeply into um, into traditional American music, and it took me to some really cool places. Speaking of acoustic guitars, you have a very special one that you told me about yesterday. Yeah, and you and you, and you got it in, in a very interesting way. You took guitar lessons from a guy named Jerry Ricks. Yes. You used to be on the can road. I, can I show you something real quick? Yeah. See that picture back on the wall back there? Yeah. That's Jerry. Oh, wow. That's Philadelphia Jerry Ricks. And I've got a, I've got a painting of Mississippi John Hurt over there. So I, I sit, Joe, I sit in the vortex between right. Mississippi John Hurt and Jerry Ricks. Right. And depending on what I'm playing, I kind of spin around a little bit. And uh, really, these two guys are, are who I am as a guitar player. So I noticed Jerry, the picture of Jerry, he's holding the guitar upside. Was he left-handed? No. Okay, just, so just, just for a photo. If you could see it closer, there's also a, the E string is, is broken and hanging down. I kind of see it, yeah. 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 Um, so you, you own uh, Mississippi John Hurt's national guitar. Well, yes. What happened was Jerry lived across the street from a guy named Dick Waterman in Philadelphia. Dick Waterman yes. was the manager of a lot of traditional blues artists. Um, Bonnie Raitt, you know, lived with Dick for a while, and that's how Bonnie got so damn good, basically, by because she learned from the source. Um, and uh, so when the, a lot of these traditional players would come to town for the Philadelphia Folk Festival or the coffee house circuit, you know, these guys came out of the deep south. They had no money. They didn't know how to live in a city. So a lot of them would sleep on Jerry's couch and I would show up for a lesson and there'd be Doc Watson and Mississippi John Hurt. And I'd be like, OK, this is great. And I would sit there and watch and 
listen. And that's when I was really starting to advance. So after John died, Mississippi John died, uh, because Jerry had taken him around and kind of functioned like his tour manager, uh, his guitar was given to Jerry. And it was right about the early 70s when um, Daryl and I were doing our first album in New York. And I asked Jerry to play on it because I wanted him to play with me on acoustic guitar on a couple songs. And he said, should I bring the Mississippi John guitar to New York for the session? I said, absolutely. So yeah. this is this is the guitar that I played on the first two Hall & Oates uh, albums. Wow. So subsequently, um, Jerry moved to Denver in the mid 70s before he left for Europe never to come back uh, and I guess he needed money he sold it to uh, to someone in Denver at the Folklore Center right and um, it became part of a, an estate collection uh, for many many years and the story with this guitar is that when John Hurt was booked to play at uh, Newport in 1963 he actually didn't have a guitar so the Newport people uh, when he came to New York City uh, a folk singer named Patrick Skye took him to uh, to one of the guitar shops in the village and said, pick whatever you want, that right. that Newport was going to buy him a guitar. And so he picked this guitar, and his reasoning was because he liked the color. Right, but he picked the gill. Yeah, I like the color. <laughs> like yeah. the, and they were actually surprised because, you know, he didn't pick a Martin or a Gibson or, you know, some more high-end guitar at the time because, right. you know, an F30 guild, is, it's a really nice, you know, F40 is not F40. 30 f30 is a really nice guitar but you know and this is the guitar that he played at newport at, at his debut basically to to the to the you know the world you know uh, dick waterman you know like there's some great interviews with him how he found sun house i think he found him yeah. at like a halfway house in rochester new york he had made his way up there and yeah he was, he was really like you know really instrumental in in like with Mississippi Fred McDowell and curating these folk festivals and, and yes, finding yes. these guys had disappeared for like 30, 30 years. And, you know, it's, it's great that you, you know, not only does that guitar have Newport folk festival, you know, Mississippi John Hurt, but it has early hollow notes. And, you know, it's, if the, if the guitar could talk, you know what I mean? It's like, there's lots, it's, of, there's lots of mojo going on here. Lots of mojo. And, and not all guitars have it, but there's just some that you just go, wow. You know, um, one of the things I wanted to ask you is um, on uh, one of your more recent records, you covered Jimmy Rogers, Miss the Mississippi and You. How did, how did you get into Jimmy Rogers, the yodeling cowboy, as they say? Yeah. Well, if you notice, I didn't yodel too much on that, on my, my yeah. version. <laughs> yodel at your own risk, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. Uh, slippery slope, that yodeling. Um, you know what happened was I, I started, the the album's called Arkansas, and here again, it's it's a kind of a misnomer in a way, because I started out to do a tribute to Mississippi John Hurt, and I cut a couple tracks, totally traditional, just me, acoustic guitar and voice, and, you know, I can do it, I know the songs, I know his repertoire, and um, I sat back with my engineer and co-producer, this guy named David Kalmuski here in Nashville, and uh, I said, you know, yeah, I can do it, but why am I doing it? I, it's like, sure, right. I can do it, but you know, it's not going to be any better, and it's not going to be any different, really. So, but then I didn't want to give up on on the idea of tri of doing a tribute to him. So, I thought to myself, you know, what would these songs sound like with a band? I said these songs are always so traditionally linked to that acoustic guitar voice. You know, that's that's how they're performed. What happens if we reimagine them with the input from from guys who, you know, kind of have the right sensibility to do this? Right. 
So we went into the studio and I, I assembled this incredible band with Steve Mackey on bass, Josh Day on drums, Guthrie Trap on guitar, electric guitar, uh, Sam Bush on mandolin, Russ Paul pedal steel, and a great cello player named Nat Smith. And um, the first song we did was the Mississippi John Hurt version of Stack O' Lee. Right. And it was magic. It, it was just like, whoa. And I remember in the control room, my engineer said, John, he goes, I don't know what this is. He goes, but just keep doing it. And I said, you're right. Let's just keep doing it. So we cut the, we cut the Mississippi John Hurt stuff. And then I went, you know what? We can do more. There's, there's more here. I don't know what it is. And I said, what was he listening to back in 1929 when he recorded on OK Records back when he lived in Mississippi. Right. I said, so I started looking at jukebox playlists. I started looking at what was being what was on the radio. And I found songs that were million selling records. And I found I found out through his, through his biography that John Hurt was a huge fan of Jimmy Rogers. Right. And I went, really? I said, okay, let's do a Jimmy Rogers song. Right. And Mississippi and You is just so beautiful. It is just a, such a beautiful song. And I changed the chords just ever so slightly. You know, I, I added some minor nines and things like that just to give it a little bit more of a, you know, I don't know, just because I can, I guess. I right, exactly. Um, but, but you're John Oates uh, and you can, right. <laughs> right. And um, I had done that song at the Bristol Rhythm and Roots Festival when they were tr uh, doing a tribute to Jimmy Rogers. And I thought, yeah, this is the right one. Um, and that's how that's how I made the decision to do it. And it kind of unlocked a key to the album. The album then became kind of a, a snapshot of music from the late 20s, early 30s. And that's really what the album's about. Yeah, and, you know, that's the thing. It's like, you know... It, when you get the uh, the band, the right band in the room, and it's 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 the good road band, John's yes. good road band, it, it it takes you to a different place, you know, and it, it is is so symbiotic when you get the right mixture of players, and it just go okay, now it all makes sense, you mm -hmm. know. I do that all the time. It's like me just on an acoustic guitar. This doesn't make any sense to me, you know what I mean? But with horns and in and yep. singers and. Michael Rhodes and Antofagast, I'm like, yeah, and yeah, now we got something. These guys know what they're doing. I'm just, yeah. I'm just playing along. You know, say, so I was just going to say, ride the pony. You know, when when it's happening, you just ride the pony, man. Just like, absolutely. Like, I mean, it's just my God, you know. And and it's that wave, and they push you forward, you know, mm -hmm. which is great, and they bring out the best of you. Speaking yeah. of songwriting, okay, just for the audience, I had to write them down. There's so many. Huh. The amount of hit songs. You've co-written, been involved with, sang, everything. Rich Girl, Kiss on My List, Out of Touch, Out of Mind, Man Eater, You Make My Dreams Come True, She's Gone, Saying So, Sarah Smile. There's a whole show right there. That's it. You just, you just, there's just some days you just go, we're just going to play the hits. <laughs> and and literally, it's, that's an hour and a half show right there. You, you could yeah, just go, yeah. and we did, to have that depth of catalog and to have so many recognizable songs you've been a part of and saying, you know, what keeps you inspired to write these days, you know, do you, you're not, do you, do you chase the old stuff or do you just go, that's, that was a different life. And this is, this is where I'm at right now. How, how do you approach writing today? Given the fact that you have such a huge catalog. Well, you know, I spent the last couple years really delving deeply into the Americana thing. And here again, this Arkansas album was really a, a, a in a sense, a cover album that were with reimagined old songs is what right. it was. So I wasn't doing that much. I did write two original songs for that album, the song Arkansas and another called Dig Back Deep. Dig Back Deep was an original because after we had recorded most of the album, I said, why am I doing this? And I went, well, I'm digging back deep into the stuff that I liked and stuff that I've rediscovered. 
And so I had this title, Dig Back Deep, and I thought that was cool. And so I wrote an original song that I stuck on the album uh, right. because I felt like it, 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 you know, it symbolized what, I, what the record was about. But, you know, after that, uh, you know, I've been on tour for two years now with the Good Road Band and, you know, really developing a great live show and really having a lot of fun with those guys. And then this this COVID thing happened and we were all sequestered and I'm at home and I'm now I'm on my own. I don't have that support system. There's right. no good road band that I can lean on. There's no great studio musicians. I mean, I'd be in the studio every day here just making music. Right. You know? right. And I so I, all of a sudden I was left to my own devices and I, I said, you know, I'm just going to write. And the first thing I did was I reconfigured my little garage band studio with a little MIDI keyboard and got right mic and put things together that I had left, you know, not really paid much attention to. And then for two days, I sat and listened to Joni Mitchell. Right. I just put Joni Mitchell on and I listened and I didn't play a thing. And I just listened and I listened and I I said, this is where the bar is set as, as a songwriter. She, she, for me, the Blue Album is, without a doubt, one of the most perfect recordings on every level. Yeah. And... I said, I'll never be able to touch this. <laughs> I made a joke. Right. <laughs> I wish I could I wish I could touch the hem of her 70s miniskirt. Right. But right. that'll never happen. Um, but you know what I thought? If I could just somehow channel that artistic sensibility, and I began to write, and the song started coming out like I couldn't stop. I wrote six songs in two weeks, and they're different. They're different than anything I've ever written in my life. I started using some tunings, some unusual tunings. Um, I started doing things that I hadn't done, and um, and I and, and thematically, from the from a lyrical point of view, uh, a lot of it had to do with the sequester. I wrote this song called "Makeshift Paradise," which um, I'm really proud of because it symbolizes what I felt was happening. But it's not maudlin and it's not depressing, right. you know. So, you know, as a songwriter, you know, you want to you want to echo and 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 kind of reflect what's going on around you. But at the same time, what's going on around is not very nice and not very good. So, yeah. How do I how do I how do I communicate how I'm feeling, but not make it feel like a some depressing thing? Right. So, that's yeah, it's great. I have an interesting question because because some sometimes I'm I'm a natural contrarian, just just the way my brain is. What's the biggest song you've ever been involved with writing, singing on record that you almost said, I don't even want anybody to hear it, scrap it, put it on track 12, <laughs> Japanese bonus track. I don't want to, I, I'd never want to hear this thing again. And now you have to, now you have to sing it every night. We well, don't have to, but people want you to sing. What's, what's the, what's the example of, of that in your vast catalog that you go, I didn't, uh -huh. I didn't see that coming. Well, I don't know, Joe. One thing I can tell you is that I I, I got a lot of track twelves on Whole Notes albums. Um, yeah. Got a lot of those. So, yeah. so I don't I don't know whether I you know I, some songs I didn't see coming. I'll tell you, Out of Touch I did not see coming. Okay. Uh, I wrote at it. I wrote the chorus for Out of Touch because the newest technology at the time was a four track cassette machine that you could overdub on and you could bounce tracks. Oh, yeah. And I thought this was this was the first time you could record at home without having to go to a recording studio and actually do multiple tracks on a you know on a cheap little cassette deck. And I had a I had a synthesizer that I didn't know how to use, and right. it was in the middle of the night and it had a button that said arpeggiator, and I right. had no idea what it did. So I hit the button, I put my finger on the key, and it went dong 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 dong, and I went, 
okay. Which was the theme of Out of Touch. And so then I started singing. And I did this very Philly chorus. And at the time, Arthur Baker was co-producing the record with us, and he was producing the stylistics. So I said, oh, this is perfect for the stylistics. So I I finished up this chorus on the cassette machine, took the cassette into the studio, into Electric Lady, and Daryl wasn't there, and it was Arthur Arthur and I. I said, Arthur, take a listen to this. I did this last night. I don't know. It's probably good for the stylistics. Maybe you want to cut it. He put it on, and he went, are you out of your mind? He said, that's a number one record for you and Daryl. So Daryl came in, and we played it, and he went, yeah. He goes, let's write a verse. And so I didn't see that coming at all. And there you go. Yeah, I th- some of my best songs that are that are I've been involved with writing are the ones that I'm the most fearful to hand in because <laughs> they they they're very to me very fragile, you know. And I think it it's because I really I reveal more about myself than I'm than I'm naturally inclined mm-hmm. to do. And well, but those have been like the, yeah. those have been in my little world the best you know the best versions you know the best songs but yeah. um tell me about i know you, you you love guitars you know tell me about the 57 strat with the humbucker because the first oh. time at if the first time i ever saw an old strat with a maple neck and a chrome pickup stuck in it yep. was your guitar and i go oh that's cool yeah. it's a great great hybrid so tell me like as a guitar geek i, I would be remiss to to not ask you um where'd you get it and, and, and where the humbuckers <laughs> stuck in there already? I, I bought it from a pot dealer in New York City uh, in, the, in the early 1970s. Hang out with more pot dealers. That's great. Yeah, it's a it's a '58, and it's um, and it's uh, I bought it for 150 bucks. Those were the days, right? Yes, sir. Those and uh, so someone had routed it out, and they routed it out. They must have used like a Dremel or something. I don't know what the heck yeah, they yeah. did. But the whole underneath that pickguard, it is totally hollow. I mean, it's completely cut apart. It's horrible. And the the humbucker, the bridge, the bridge pickup is a a, an original PAF. Nice. And I thought the the neck pickup was PAF as well. All these years. Right. So I had taken that pickguard off the guitar back in the early '90s, and I had and I put a, a traditional strat style setup on it a different pick card and then i said you know i'm not going to take this guitar on the road anymore it's kind of valuable i'll just leave it and seymour duncan uh we were talking one day he goes what'd you ever do with that strat with the humbuckers and i said well i said it's in my closet i've got i still got the pick guard with humbuckers he goes man he goes he said the same thing you said he said he said i think that was the first time i ever saw a strat with humbuckers. I went, he goes, man, we got to put that back and you got to play it. And I said, okay. Right. So it's actually on YouTube. I sent it to him uh, with the pick guard, with the humbuckers. And interestingly enough, when he got, he took the pick guard out and looked at it, the neck pickup was one of his first pickups. It was a Seymour Duncan from the early 70s. Wow. Wow. I and love that. It was crazy. So, so he, he, we took that out and he said, I'm, I'll give you the pickup back. He goes, but let me put one of my, we want to keep the original P, uh, PAF in the back yeah. in the, in the, at, the, at, the, at the bridge. He goes, let me, he goes, I'll give you one of my new PAF rep, you know, which are great pickups. Um, and so he put that back in, re- restored the guitar and I've been playing it on tour ever since 
for the past eight or nine years now. And it's magic. And there's, there must be something about that chambered thing where it's all routed out under the pickguard because it sings like no other guitar I've ever had. Well, you know, if they call that route the everything route. It means like you can do two humbuckers, three single coils, yeah. three humbuckers, right. eight, eight pickups stacked. However you want to configure a pickguard, yeah. it'll just fit yeah. in there. Yeah. You know, it. You know, it's interesting because you know uh, people know me as a guitar collector, and and you know probably more so as a guitar collector. But um, you know, I love those kind of guitars because that is the epitome of what to me guitars are. It's a tool. It's yes. a it's a it's a tool. Like I collect stuff like that. I also collect stuff that's perfectly preserved because I'm just a custodian of Americana and, and history. Yep. But my favorite guitars are the ones that have the chisel routes and are all messed up and yeah. But uh, anyway, thank you, John, um, for doing this. It's been a, su a real real honor for me to talk to you. And and um, you know the common denominator. It's like I've been talking like the last two weeks to two two the greatest songwriters and and you know singers. It's like it's like it's amazing the the, the commonness of of of, of the the. The, the ability to write and sing and 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 it's really an eye-opening experience and it and it uh, it's inspiring me to sing more. I've been singing a lot hey, more. Joe, don't hold back, man. Don't hold back. <laughs> because you know I'm a guitar player who sings, not a singer who plays. And yeah. you know, and it's it's like I'm like you know, at 43 years old, I'm like I'm like oh my god, I gotta get my shit together. You know, so hey, man, you got plenty of time to practice. Career, you know, you got plenty of time to practice. <laughs> Yeah, we got. It, 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 I always say that the, the joke is if we know nothing about musicians in 2020, we're available. You know, call me. You know, you can't use the excuse. No, I'm too busy. I, I'm real busy today. No, we're really not. You know, <laughs> there's one thing. One, there's one thing you can't replace. And I know you know this. Playing live, playing live, and especially for not only for the audience and for the for the you know the experience, but for your chops. I mean. Yeah. Yeah. When I'm playing live, I, there's nothing better than playing a tour and going right into the studio because you just feel like you can, you know, it's all happening, you know. There's no, there's no substitute. Yeah. I find my, my road chops last eight days. I'm really good for about eight days. At noon on the eighth day, it, is, it, it expires. That's and <laughs> and, um, and it's uh, it's just and then and then I then I, then I then I really struggle and I actually I borderline suck so I have to yeah. rehearse. Well, I, doubt, I doubt that I doubt that. But the um, first gig's important and anyway, John, thank you so much. You guys are you just it's it's been an honor and, and a great insight and 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 I apologize to everyone in in Philadelphia. I, I didn't I did not mean to <laughs> marginalize you as a suburb of New York City. That was my intent. I was just no, exacerbating how short happen. the distance was. Two different worlds. It's like Mars and Pluto. Sorry. That's right. That's I, I right. got to get that out of here. There's enough controversy Good. about me. Enough. <laughs> enough. No mas. I got to get that out of there. I pre-apologize yeah. for everything that I say. Anyway, John, thank you so much. I really appreciate you doing this. And Thanks, Joe. I really appreciate it, too. And uh, it's a pleasure to talk to you. And maybe we'll do a show together one day. That would Come be great. We we got to get off the computers. We got to get out of the cameras. We just we got to do this in person, you know. You know, yes, playing sir. live, playing loud, you know. Yeah, man. All Cheers, right. guys. Thank you for watching. You. And until next week, thank you to my very special guest, John Oates, and uh, we'll see you again next week. <laughs>